Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Ovnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. Exciting times. Love and podcasting in the times of the coronavirus. The big Rona is here. <laughs> Roni. Ro- Hello, and welcome back to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex for the second episode in a row, and unfortunately for the foreseeable future, I am joined remotely by uh, my friend, my colleague, my brother, my my co-pilot down this journey into the contrary. Julio, how are you doing on this? I think it's Thursday. I'm losing track of the days here. It's Thursday, right? It is a Thursday. It is uh, week two for me of quarantine. Uh, week what for you? You're, I mean, you've been working from home for a while now, so you should be either used to it by now or driven completely insane by it. Uh, which is Which is it? Oh no, I'm I'm I mean like how we were saying before we started recording. I'm loving it. Like, you know, 3 months of this is going to wear on me, but you know, 6 6 7 weeks of just I mean, I have work to do and I'm productive during my work hours and whatnot, but then other than that just staying home and organizing shit and watching movies and TV shows that I've been meaning to. I mean, it's not the circumstance I would like it to be, but I'm definitely hanging in there. I'm doing all right. Yeah, you you mentioned right before we started recording that uh, you know taking care of stuff that you've been meaning to for a while. I'm I'm cleaning the bathroom tomorrow. That's I don't have to wait till the weekend and use my one day off on the weekend to do it. I can just do it on a Friday, and everything's gonna be okay. That is a huge game changer. And again, like we discussed in the No Holds Barred episode, if it seems like we're making light of this situation, we understand how serious it is, but also we're going to bring our own personal anecdotes to it and a main thing to keep in mind, as is the entire crux of this podcast. Humor is a coping mechanism. And uh, with this situation, what you said, though, is exactly right. And that's not just you know uh, necessary for a pandemic. It's just any situation. When you only have, you know, one or two days off in the week, you don't want to do shit. And that's why the things you need to get done don't get done. And so having the spare time to do it. My big thing is um, I'm finally going to inventory all my movies. And also uh, I'm going to go through my just copious crates of uh, pro wrestling bullshit that I own and decide what I want to keep and what I don't. And then basically figure out how I'm going to sell the rest of that. So. It's time to make the most of this pandemic, ladies and gentlemen. Coming up next, uh, Alex's coronavirus garage sale. I will join you remotely. That's a very real possibility once all this shit clears up, as I'm just going to put all this stuff on my lawn and just with a huge sign that says, make me an offer. (laughs) 
We're here today to discuss The Hangover 3, the third and final installment in The Hangover franchise. Who would have thought that, you know, when The Hangover came out, do you think that years later we would be referring to something as The Hangover franchise? I mean, I'm kind of surprised we're, we're, you know, it was a bit of ahead of its time in the sense of, you know, we're not 40 movies deep into this like we would be with, you know, your typical, (laughs) your franchise of the day. Yeah, that's right. They didn't split this final chapter in two movies. They just kept it to one, (laughs) condensed, punchy. Kept it to 90 minutes. God bless them. Uh, Yeah, a very uh, underappreciated finale to the Hangover franchise, which I believe... um, no, three didn't do as well as two, but Todd Phillips definitely has his uh, eternal niche carved out in that R-rated genre of uh, biggest opening weekend was the first Hangover, and then the biggest opening weekend was the second Hangover, and I believe, if, if I'm not mistaken, the Joker, or just Joker, it's much cleaner that way, uh, was the <laughs> has the record for the highest R-rating opening weekend for an R-rated movie. The Hangover 3 is rated a lowly 20% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, so if this is your first time listening to The Contrarians, we, uh, as always, appreciate you listening. And if you're returning, thank you. Bear with us here as we explain our gimmick. Uh, we find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly ranked, also known as Certified Fresh. Make a case for why it shouldn't be. And on the other side of that coin, find a nasty green splotch, a rotten movie, a rotten film, as it were and make a case for its positive merit. We like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine, as we say. So being that The Hangover 3 is at 20%, we're going to be making a case for, you know, some of the things that were overlooked and why it's a a fine movie in its own right, both the uh, comedy and action genre. Uh, If you want to know how we really feel about it, definitely hang around for the second half of the podcast, the appropriately titled Real Talk, which... Uh, I'm pretty sure it's going to be a pretty fascinating one for this episode. So Yeah, I think uh, longtime listeners uh, might have a pretty good feel about how we feel. Definitely how you feel. I think you're more vocal than me about uh, Hangover 3. I'm more vocal about Hangover 2. I, I will jump to the defense of Hangover 2. Uh, and not even as if I love that movie, but just as in, uh, you know, it's not as bad as people say. Uh, well, ha- Hangover 3 is your baby when it comes to that. I, I've seen you just take a bullet or two for it. <laughs> I, we'll see. We'll, we'll get to real talk, and then things will get will get a little heated, maybe. So, being that it was twenty percent on the old RT, Julio critics didn't seem to like this. What were they saying? So, lots of rotten green splotches uh, in the Run Tomatoes website. We have a few quotes from uh, from the Tomato Meter. Starting with Sean Burns from Philadelphia Weekly, who says, A singularly unpleasant experience drenched in so much anger and frustration that the film almost becomes interesting. Almost. Did you feel the anger and frustration? It's really hard to discuss this movie <laughs> without seeping into real talk. I'll tell you what, though. You could, you could apply this quote to Joker, or who knows, I would imagine a number of Todd Phillips movies. And I could see that reading. I, I could take that. Uh, that would be a a proper review for Hated, the Gigi Allen documentary. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> uh, 
Tom Clift from Movie Mezzanine says, One of the most unnecessary trilogies in the history of motion pictures slumps to its subdued and flavorless finale. Man. Flavorless. Tell us how you really Lots feel. There's a flavor in this movie. Yeah, I mean, you know, you might not like the flavor, but there is flavor. Um, Jason Bailey from Flavor Wire. How appropriate. <laughs> it's such nice. tire sick, such a nakedly calculated play to be controversial for an increasingly irrelevant filmmaker to get attention. He used to do so by making funny movies. They say he's an irrelevant filmmaker. It, jokes on Jason Bailey, because that guy, Todd Phillips, was just nominated for <laughs> for Best Director Oscar. He uh, got a fucking aisle seat at the Oscars, like, look, <laughs> looking on so condescendingly on everyone else and got nominated for Best uh, Director. Fucking Where was Jason Bailey? Watching in his living room? Live tweeting. Live tweeting, feeling out his ballad, like really angry. Uh, <laughs> and finally... John Serba from MLive.com says the hangover part three is where the series gets the dry heaves. The dry heaves. We've all gotten them. Yeah, that that's I mean, historically speaking for myself, the dry heaves are never part of the hangover. It's part of the night before. <laughs> like uh I went to my friend's wedding back at the beginning of the month. It was three weeks ago, but based on what's happened in this country, it felt like it was fucking seven years ago. Uh <laughs> Not this country, but the world rather. But anyway, yeah, I went to his wedding and we partied hardy. And then I drove back from Dallas the next morning, hungover as fuck. Had to pull over at a rest stop to take a nap. And then when I finally got back home, it's when it all set in on me. And there were no dry heaves. It was a sprint to the <laughs> toilet and it was just evacuating the entire weekend. Okay, but uh, then do you get the dry heaves after that? You know, because the dry heaves is when you don't have anything left, right? I have to believe the dry heaves comment is a play on uh, Ed Helms because Ed Helms in this movie, I think in all three of them, in The Office, in many of the roles I've seen him in, he's one of those very he's he he basically has usurped Jim Carrey as the modern dry heaver <laughs> of the like he has the noise down and everything. So I think that's a, a play on uh, Ed Helms as um, Stu. So the Hangover Three. Uh, I mean, I'm you, you have to operate under the assumption that you've seen the first and second one leading into this. And, and how would you not? I mean, they were they were huge hits. You might have hate watched them, but you still watch them. And we're not here to baby you through, and so we're not going to you know waste our time recapping the first and second one. But the Hangover Three was released um, not Memorial Day weekend of 2013, the weekend before. It looks like it was released in the U.S. on May 23rd, 2013. Immediately from the other two c takes on a completely different tone. We get this Michael Bay esque uh, opening. It's like a jailbreak that we we the viewing audience don't really understand what's going on. But there's a, a prison in Bangkok that's in the midst of a riot, and it's most uh, we come to find out it's most dangerous. Uh, um, inmate Leslie Chow, played by Ken Hyung, has escaped, a la uh, Shawshank Redemption. He yeah, he, he's a he's a Tim Robbins, he's an Andy Dufresne. Uh, this is it's a pretty awesome sequence, not just because it uh, it manages to reference. I don't know if it's still number one, but at least one of the top uh, IMDb 250 movies. But also because the amount of talent that you just see pop up in those opening credits every time the new name comes up. It's almost like we're not worthy. I mean, we're talking about uh, the man behind Chernobyl, Craig Mazin, 
writer, showrunner of Chernobyl, the director, Todd Phillips, the man behind Joker, just last year's massive, uh, dark superhero drama, supervillain drama, I guess. Eight-time Academy Award nominee Bradley Cooper. I think it yep. beat you to it there. But The yeah. man behind The Star is Born, writer, director, star. Uh, you know, those three alone, that would be just a massive uh, critical and financial hit, just knowing that you have those two behind the, behind the project. And then, you know, you just have uh, Ken Jong, John Goodman, Zagalafanakis, Ed Helms, Mike Epps, Everybody's coming back to this party. People from the first movie, people from the second movie. The opening credits are cool because of what's happening, the riot and and the the homage to Shawshank Redemption, but also because of just how how much of a mic drop they are. And it's like talent after talent. It's a it's an A-list affair, that's definitely for sure. And then we transition to the United States. On the other side of the globe, we see uh Alan Garner, uh played by Zach Galifianakis. Uh he ends up causing this final destination esque car wreck. Uh, he's trying to transport, I guess, a giraffe just down the freeway back to his home. It, it plays, you know, for laughs as he's driving along, drinking a beer and bop by a quintessential '90s act. Hanson <laughs> plays. It's all played for laughs and a good time, but it, it paints the picture that uh, Alan is a very disturbed character as uh, his reckless behavior ends up decapitating a giraffe and causing. Untold amounts of damage and uh, fees for the the highway and the the state. And it ends up with his dad, Jeffrey Tambor, who I guess is known by the mayor, known by the local government, uh, you know, just kind of cutting a promo on him and telling him, you need to get your shit together. You're my, he says, you're my 40 year old son. And uh, Alan corrects him, I'm 42. And (laughs) so it leads to Jeffrey Tambor having a heart attack and dying almost, you know, in the middle of this lecture that he's giving him. So this is just like the first five minutes of the movie. And we already had uh, the awesome prison riot slash scape. Yeah, pretty gory uh, for a comedy uh, giraffe death. Cause uh, the head, once it's decapitated, it just kind of flies off into somebody's windshield and breaks it open. Yeah. And then uh, Jeffrey Tambor, like, uh, I don't remember if he's in the second one, but he's definitely a big part of the first one, or at least a, a prominent character in the first one. Uh, they just kill him off. At the beginning, uh, but more importantly, I think that from the beginning, this movie does something pretty brave, which is double down on how unlikable the Zach Galifianakis character is, uh, Alan. He's kind of been a pain in the ass, and the reason why everybody gets in trouble in the franchise, in the first movie, in the second movie, and then you know now in this one. But uh, I felt like they kicked it up to eleven on this one because. This ends up, unlike the previous two movies, this ends up being his movie. So I think in order to take him to redemption, they have to first drag him down to just the depth of hell as far as just how annoying and how uh, inconsiderate he can be. And uh, not every filmmaker can get away with that. I think that you need to have, first of all, a strong relation to the characters, which after two movies, Top Tillips clearly did. And also, you just have to be able to master the tone necessary to have such an unlikable character and yet make us follow him and eventually love him through the course of the movie. Yeah, and it all paints Galifianakis in this very weird corner and puts him in this very weird situation as to where we, the audience, associate with him because he is this just tornado of emotional and physical destruction. But there's still this certain... Uh, charm about him but it does segue into Jeffrey Tambor's funeral um, 
Sid. Sid Gardner is his character's name. And this is what reunites the gang. The gang's all back together. We see Ed Helms himself in the returning that uh, Dr. Stu, the dentist, we see uh, Bradley Cooper, Phil, and uh, of course, contrarians, uh, stronghold, Justin Bartha <laughs> as Doug returns to the fray and everyone's there at, at the funeral. And it's kind of like it, it paints a weird, uh, or it portrays a weird emotion for the audiences. We're looking on and, kind of getting fuzzy uh nostalgic memories seeing all these people together but then it brings you back to reality in the sense that this is taking place at a funeral and kind of brings you back to reality it's a uh, todd phillips again not afraid to uh prey on those dark emotions that humans hold so dear yeah in a way he's kind of being up in the ante uh throughout the franchise right because in the first movie it was just a bachelor party that that went crazy Right, things went a little too far, and then the second movie, it was something similar, but it was abroad. It was in Bangkok, and and things got darker and crazier. Even this time, we are opening with a funeral. It's not even any sort of celebration that would uh, indicate that oh, well, you know, we're gonna party and things are gonna get crazy from there. Uh, It's I, I think that this movie is designed to sequence by sequence throw you off, keep leave you guessing. You're you never really know what to expect, which is. Probably the biggest accomplishment that Todd Phillips has with this franchise is that uh, he basically trolled us in the best possible way. He trolled us uh, in each installment, right? Like with the second Hangover, you basically got a carbon copy of the original, but in a way that that was fully aware of what it was doing. And then with the third one, you got something that is nothing at all like the previous two movies. They they don't even drink and, and get a hangover in this movie. It, that's just Todd Phillips kind of like telling you, don't even try to anticipate what I'm going to throw at you because you're going to fail. Yeah, my stuttering and stammering and awkward silence, I, I could not for the life of me remember uh, Ed Helms's last name in the office, Andy, Andrew. It's Andy Bernard. That's it. it took me <laughs> a... Anyway, the gang's all back together. And being that Doug, the, the nucleus of the group, Justin Bartha pulls everyone together and explains, you know, Alan's having a really fucking hard time and this is kind of the culmination of it. And we're thinking about hosting an intervention for him. We want him to get some help, like a life coach, you know, just general help in life. Uh, We don't think he's going to agree to go anywhere unless the whole gang's there. So they do stage an intervention and uh, pretty sure the only reason it really works out is because Bradley Cooper's there. Because to be fair, I don't know, you know, I've never dealt with serious substance abuse or serious issues but part of me thinks in any situation if i knew bradley cooper had my back and was supportive of me making a decision i would probably make that decision yeah uh, but also i think that uh, bradley cooper is kind of a i would say underrated in this movie because he does so little on purpose right uh this is I think they all went into this one knowing it was the last one. It's meant to be the closing chapter. And uh, and not just that, but I think Bradley Cooper already was eyeing his transition from raunchy comedies uh, to more serious stuff, right? This is the man who, like we said, would eventually go on to write, direct, and star A Star is Born. So he, he knew that he kind of had to pass the torch, the comedic torch, the sex symbol torch, every torch available to him, uh, to his castmates. And so he was basically he showed up on set like Goro from Mortal Kombat and he just had a torch <laughs> in each hand. Yes. And, and then he deliberately uh, dimmed his star power so that the transition would be smooth. 
And you can tell, like, in the first Hangover movie special, and then also in the second one, he's very much, uh, he draws your attention. He's a very lively character. And But in this one, you can tell that Bradley Cooper is just restraining himself and just letting everybody else take the be funny, take the laughs, take the spotlight. And he's just there to provide support. Uh, much like he's in the story, he's providing support for Alan. He's also providing support, I think, for the entire cast and, and kind of letting them uh, get their feet wet a little more, kind of showing them that they can carry the movie without him being the star. He's just kind of in the background uh, providing assistance when necessary. That's that's a hell of a thing when you uh, want to look like Bradley Cooper and two are as funny as Bradley Cooper can be, to just be able to blend yourself in the background through most of the runtime so that everybody else gets a, a chance to to shine, to be bigger. That's, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, he, uh, I mean, he definitely... Took a back seat to a lot of things in this movie. God love him for it. So Alan agrees to go to treatment. On their way to Arizona, the group is attacked, ran off the road by uh, looks like a moving truck. Not entirely sure, but they're run off the road. They're all zip tied and basically taken hostage. Uh, no, basically about it. They're taken hostage. Uh, Ed, um, Mike Epps, excuse me, uh, reappears as Black Doug. And we're introduced to a character that's referenced only by first name in the first movie, Marshall, who's played by John Goodman in this circumstance. Essentially, a, a series of actions from the first movie set off this peristaltic chain reaction that caused unforeseen amounts of damage and really uh, impeded the lives of several people. It's the type of thing that you would think this would be in the sequel and would be something that would be pulled off when this shit was still fresh in, you know, viewers' minds and not something that would be saved for uh, four years down the road to, you know, just expect the audience to remember these things. But that's how it happens in real life. I mean, you always, uh, you know, the consequences of things you did in the past always sneak up on you. They don't show up in the immediate sequel. They show up two movies down the line, if not longer. So <laughs> I, I, I can totally get it. They did something that even in the first movie is not necessarily, uh, it doesn't call attention to itself, right? The the whole Marshall thing is just like a throwaway line from Omar Epps. And uh, and yet here, Marshall shows up and he's a, a, a character that they have to reckon with. It's a force of nature the way that only uh, John Goodman can play him. But it's, it's cool because, I mean, I, I think anybody that knows a little bit about movie making we can tell it's not like this was planned from the beginning, right? I don't think that they made the the first hangover thinking uh, they didn't have a plan. Yeah, I don't think they made the first hangover thinking like, oh yeah, this movie's definitely going to make half a billion dollars, so we need to <laughs> we need to write all this shit for something to happen down the line. Yeah, let's plant the seed so that Palpatine comes back in the third one. No, they <laughs> they were just kind of you know they just wrote a movie and it ended. So then when they're writing the third one, Craig Mason and Todd Phillips they make the very specific deliberate decision to go back and kind of mine the first movie for seeds that could grow into something uh, in the third movie. You know, they could have picked so many uh, flashier elements, right? But instead they decide to go with a really obscure thing that, that I mean, Mike Epps is doing fine, but in a way, you know, that's cool. Let's bring back a, a, a black character into the franchise. You know, that's uh, He seems so out of place in this. I mean, uh, this might be bleeding a little bit into real talk, but it's just like seeing him there is I, I don't want to say it's not a breath of fresh air, but it's just kind of like, man, what's up? 
What are you doing here? <laughs> but, you know, maybe maybe that was kind of the point that he doesn't really belong in this story of uh, really stupid white dudes running around America. And that's why he gets shot <laughs> 30 minutes in and then he dies. He's gone. I mean, real talk, Contrarian's Corner, anything we want to talk about. One thing we can be in agreement on is that John Goodman's wardrobe in this movie is absolutely on fucking point. His track suits and his sunglasses and his his hair that's perfectly clothed. I mean, his his whole uh, aura in this is some top tier machismo, which I do have some respect for. But we get the breakdown uh, essentially with all the drugs gone awry uh, from the first movie, the drug deal with the roofies and the uh, juxtaposition of Black Doug selling things the wrong way, this and that. It all leads to this scenario in which uh, Chow, Leslie Chow, is able to rob Marshall of, I believe it was $21 million in a, a heist they were attempting to pull off. And because of the, the events of the first movie, he's able to kind of get his finger in that pie and make off with this $21 million. And Goodman wants his money back. Marshall wants his money back, understandably so. But Chow, you know, he's obviously a fugitive, and he was uh, up and holding in Bangkok, and no one really knows who he is except for uh, Zach Galifianakis, Alan. He's one of his only friends, not even a confidant, just a friend. So the entire reason Marshall apprehended these guys is because he knows that Alan can figure out where the fuck he's at. Because they've been emailing. Exactly. Actually, not emailing. They've been writing letters back and forth. He wants his money back, and he wants Chow, so... Uh, in return, he takes Doug hostage because uh, I guess Justin Bartha had to go film, I don't know. Um, National Treasure 3. <laughs> I was going to say it would have been 2012. So he had to go film uh, Age of Ultron <laughs> where he played Ultron. So he could only be in this movie for 20 minutes tops. He had to get in and get out. So he's taken that's, hostage. That's, so that's the, the joke. You thought that the Hangover movies what made them hangover movies was that they the lack of justin bartha well yeah the lack of justin bartha is really uh what what makes a hangover movie a hangover movie i as i was watching it today i remember the first time i watched this movie because phillips and mason had established so early and so well that i didn't know what i could expect i i kind of thought that maybe this is the one where we uh where we get justin bartha for the entire movie maybe nobody gets lost maybe Somebody else gets lost. I mean, from second one here, we know we're in a completely different movie than the previous two hangovers, but still uh, within the first act manages to say, nope, no Justin Bartha for the rest of the movie. We'll get him back in the, the last portion of the movie. It's just he gives you a completely different movie, but still maintains the sense of uh, familiarity. Got to respect it. Yeah, you, he has to give you something familiar so that uh, all the other crazy stuff that's nothing like a hangover movie sticks. So, the Wolf Pack tracks down Chow. He is in Tijuana, Mexico. They operate under the plan. They have um, Stu uh, at Helms go into a pharmacy and get some narcotics, uh, some heavy shit. They're going to knock him out and basically just drag him to the foot of Marshall. They're going to just lay him at his feet. Uh, they get to Tijuana. Uh, we get uh, one of my favorite modern dry comedy bits of we get a completely deadpanning uh, Ken Hyong singing Nine Inches Nails, or I guess it's the Johnny Cash cover of Hurt, just completely deadpan, staring, staring straight ahead. It, it's it's incredible. I've referenced that on the podcast at least two or three times, I know, in our five-year tumultuous history. But, uh, well, it's also, it also takes that tired trope of the, the bad karaoke gag and finally does something fresh with it, which is 
as easy as transporting it to Mexico. That's really all you need to do. And and suddenly the idea of this dude badly singing a dramatic song, it becomes funny again. I mean, that and not to take anything from Ken Jong, who really is. Would you say he's the MVP in this movie? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd have to think so. Um, I mean, we get some, uh, we get an Oscar clip or two from Zach Galifianakis, which you know we'll get to. But as far as the um, the most domineering presence in this movie, I think it would definitely have to go to Ken Hyung. Yeah, he's definitely he, his experience is the opposite of the Justin Bartha one, where in in the Hangover one, he probably had even less time than Doug. But because he's such a fan favorite, he has managed to carve himself bigger and bigger parts as as the franchise progressed. And to where now, he's basically, I would say, the main antagonist, even more so than John Goodman. He's really the one that has... Because Goodman is just all business. But with Chow, the, the problem is not just that he's a troublemaker, but also that he has this very uh, intense emotional connection with uh, with Zach Galifianakis. And also that he has a past with... Uh, with the other two, with 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 Stu and uh, and Phil, so he's definitely a more complex character with a more complex relationship. Yeah, I think Ken Hyung is the star of this. So the, the, my trouble is, um, we'll get to Galifianakis and Goodman both have their respective Oscar scenes, and while Hyung is the star of this, I just can't think of his Oscar scene per se, and that that's kind of one of the things that hinders my ability to be over the moon about his performance. Oh, I can see um, that. I can see that. Um, in a way, it's almost like we're still witnessing. He's still. On the rise, we haven't even seen uh, how good it can get with Ken Jong. Whereas when Zach Galifianakis gets to an Oscar clip, you're like, "Oh wow, okay, well now we've reached peak Galifianakis." And when <laughs> Goodman does it, we're like, "Oh, this was great, but I've seen it before because it's John Goodman." Exactly, John Goodman with the uh, like uh, when Nick Nolte got the supporting actor nomination for Warrior. It's like, it, yeah, he's fucking Nick Nolte, of course. And in this situation, it's like when John Goodman's Oscar scene comes up, it's like, "Well, duh, it's fucking John Goodman." <laughs> doesn't make it any less good but it's just you know the way it plays out but um chow wises up to their plan of uh trying to drug him and he figures out what's going on and he turns the table on them and uh basically leaves them with no uh, option but for uh, bradley cooper to spill the proverbial can of beans and say hey this is what's going on we run into this marshall guy he wants his money you know we got to figure out a way to work together with this so uh chow convinces them to break into this mansion i I believe near the border uh where he says he's stashed the gold so he can return it to uh marshall and they go to this mansion they end up breaking in they steal all the gold from this place and it turns out that it's been uh, a ruse a con uh, a charade chow has tricked them into helping him steal gold from marshall himself right he told him that the house was his house that he had lost it when he uh when he went to prison and somebody else was living there not knowing that there was gold inside and that person was not at home and so they break in and then it turns out that it was not his house it was john goodman's house (laughs) and he was stealing from him um this whole sequence by now i mean I, i would imagine most people would have noticed and maybe this is the problem with so many critics that didn't get the movie that they didn't realize that we're not it's not the same movie as the previous two uh, not just as far as the plot but also as far as the tone and even the genre i mean this is not a a drunk comedy so to speak this is this is more of an action drama with a little bit of comedy the them breaking in is it's 
more of a heist movie. It's more along the lines of Mission Impossible. They don't stop the movie just to make silly jokes. There, this is a lot of just tension, and and the score underlines that. The performances underline that. Uh, Bradley Cooper is not wisecracking left and right like he used to. He's just tense, uh, barely acknowledging uh, uh, Zach is whenever he asks him a question. Uh, and then on top of all that, you probably could sense it having seen it more than once. The the sexual tension between these guys, it just completely goes <laughs> off. Of, you know, it, it's been there simmering for two movies now. But in this one, it's just off the charts, right? Uh, Galifianakis and and Chow definitely have a thing for Bradley Cooper. They, they ask him to take his shirt off at one point when they have to break a wall. Uh, there's uh, earlier when they're breaking into the house, they're on all fours crawling on the kitchen floor and Chow just sticks his nose in uh, Ed Helms' butt. It's just, it kind of goes to show that really it's impossible not to develop some sort of sexual chemistry slash attraction when you've gone through so much. Oh, yeah. These guys have been through so many adventures. They've gone through so many intense experiences that at one point it's almost like, okay, what haven't we done yet? Oh, I guess we haven't fucked. Well, (laughs) let's let's inch toward that. I mean, when you got a gang of bros and you guys, you know, spend... uh... You know, I speak from experience. You got a decade plus riding deep together. There's always going to be that one guy in the group. Where you're like, man, he doesn't look too bad with his shirt off. You know? <laughs> Let's see where this goes. Or I wonder what he looks like with his shirt off. <laughs> <laughs> but they have been uh, hoisted by their own petard in this situation. They enlisted Chow to help them, and he has completely uh, thrown the fireball back at them. So they're apprehended, arrested in Mexico, but they are free on bail, taken back to the mansion. And again, we had mentioned this already, but this is where they discover that it is in fact Marshall's uh, home and that uh, Chow wasn't taking back his 21 million. He was stealing the other half of it from John Goodman. And he's wearing a particularly outstanding tracksuit at this point in time. I believe it's a, a sky blue with about like a, a cut of cloud white through it, which I really appreciate. But he, um, he says, you know, I'm sick of this shit and you know, someone's got to pay for this. So he shoots Mike Epps and, uh, sadly he falls right into the pool. So they're gonna have to drain that and refill that pool. And there's going to be <laughs> all sorts of, uh, cleanliness that's going to have to be revived because of it. Make sure you wash that pool for 20 seconds, at least, before you refill it. Sing happy birthday two times before you refill that pool. <laughs> and uh, I always remember this because he he tells them, go fucking find him. I don't care where he is. You have to bring him to my feet now. And uh, I remember you telling me this the first time yep. we talked about it. Was Is it still your favorite line of the movie? I have it right here in my notes. Best line in the movie. Which is? I'm killing Dugs today. <laughs> John Goodman, yeah, basically says, and hurry up, I'm killing Dugs today. And he looks over at Justin Bartha, who looks like he's operating on 40 minutes sleep for three days. <laughs> and like he got to set and they had to just rush him through wardrobe and Phillips is like, all right, action. And he doesn't even know what his character's direction is. I, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if he just couldn't even remember his lines. And that's why he doesn't speak for the rest of the movie. So the wolf pack tracks down Chow because uh, Bradley Cooper left his cell phone in the, the minivan that um, Chow stole. They track him down and, you know, it's it really seems like all great conflicts always have to end at the source. And in this uh, situation, end on the battlefield that is Las Vegas because they track down the signal from Phil's cell phone and it's in Vegas. 
and Real Talk Contrarian's Corner, whatever we're doing right now, if you're going to start with the opening riff of Mother by Danzig, <laughs> uh, by Glenn Danzig, <laughs> I'm going to start getting really hyped about whatever's about to follow. Julio, I know you're a big Guitar Hero guy. Do you remember this from the first Guitar oh, Hero? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. uh, uh it's funny because I was listening to a podcast about uh, Joan Jett earlier. And I was like, oh, oh yeah. I know her songs from uh, Guitar Hero <laughs> and Rock Band. <laughs> Same here. Yeah, I remember Mother from uh, Guitar Hero 2, I think is, right? Uh, it's either one or two. But, I mean, that shouldn't be the extent to which you know Glenn Danzig. I mean, he was the fucking lead singer of the Misfits. Come on. Come I'm on, sure, Julio. I'm sure I know other songs uh, from the Misfits. I just couldn't tell you off the top of my head. But if I listen to them, I'll be like, oh, yeah, I know this one. If, if, and it was like, oh, I know this one from uh, The Hangover 2 or The Hangover 1. <laughs> and we go to a pawn shop in Las Vegas. Uh, looks to be presumably off the strip. And this is where um, Melissa McCarthy, Academy Award nominee, is, uh, I guess, the owner or manager of this pawn shop. And, you know, to make sure we set the correct tone as to what kind of uh, intellectual level she's on. She's watching pro wrestling, and so, you know, <laughs> we know right away she's a fucking moron, and you know who's a bigger fucking moron is Alex from The Contrarians, because based on that, like, five-second clip they show of her watching, I can tell you what match that was, where it was, and why it happened, <laughs> which I will do right now. It was John Cena versus CM Punk. It was at the American Airlines Center in Dallas, Texas, and it was the match before WrestleMania 29 to determine who faced The Rock uh, for the WWE Championship. The For any wrestling fans that listen, I know we have a couple. The, the historical significance of that match was, um, Julio, I'm sure you've heard the term pile driver before. Yes, I knew how to do one with uh, Zangief and Street Fighter 2. There you go. The pile driver is a banned move in the WWE, and apparently just Punk and Cena got together before the match and like, fuck it, we're going to do this anyway. And they did it, and it got like this monster reaction, but as the legend goes, when they got back to the curtain, Vince McMahon just like fucking berated them, like pulled them into like a room aside and just fucking like went off on them. Here nor there. Melissa McCarthy bringing some uh, unexpected star power to the movie because if I remember correctly, she was in the trailer, but she wasn't like part of the the uh, marketing campaign, and she what her name wasn't on the poster, right? Uh, you know, if if you just kind of went into this, you know, kind of blind, just knowing it's another Hangover movie, this would have been a really pleasant surprise for you. I think that this was before Melissa McCarthy felt that she was too big to do fun cameos in movies. You know, this is because I know she did this. She has that. What is it like one scene? And this is 40. Uh, this is the equivalent of you've heard me say it before here on the podcast. Before Emma Stone got big, her career was more interesting when she was playing background characters and really giving it her all. Absolutely. Same thing with Lisa McCarthy. I I mean, I, I enjoy her as a leading actress in, in her projects. But I think that where she really shines uh, is when she gets she's given, you know, one or two scenes and she really spices things up i think that's when i appreciate her the most uh she doesn't do this anymore you know uh nominated twice by the academy she's headlined several projects uh, she has her own production company you know at this point reoccurring spots on saturday night live exactly yeah the, the joy of seeing melissa mccarthy 
killing it in a small role is something that's just in the past. That made me appreciate it this time around even more. I was like, oh, yeah, I remember when that used to happen. Melissa McCarthy would just show up and and just kill it for five minutes and then disappear. And you're like, oh, that was awesome. So her chemistry with Alan is palpable from the from from the jump from eye contact. They talk about Billy Joel as only the worst human beings on the planet do, and they <laughs> <laughs> oh, and they God. jest back and forth, and um, through their I guess you want to call it flirting, they're able to uncover that Chow did come through. He pawned off a, a one of his gold bars. She said it was worth four hundred thousand, but he took eighteen grand for it, and. Uh, she tips them off to the, um, escort service that he ordered, uh, uh, some guys and gals through. So they go off, um, Galifianakis here with, you know, the Chris Farley cover band exit going out <laughs> and just like tripping over instrument after instrument. And to me, it definitely brought back memories of us watching uh, Black Sheep together, of me laughing and you saying, this just does nothing for me. Well, the difference is that this, in in this movie, in Hangover 3, this comes after easily the sexiest scene in the franchise, which is when uh, Galifianakis grabs a lollipop, sucks on it, and then hands it over to Melissa McCarthy, who sucks on it as well. And... It's just, I mean, it's meant to be funny, but it's also kind of hot because it's not the the usual stuff that you usually see. And I think part of it is also that it just humanizes. It's realistic, Alan. exactly. It's not, you know, it it's not Denise Richards and Matt Dillon and Nev Campbell going to town on each other. It's not something that we can't hope to obtain. It's very realistic sexiness. Yes, it's it, that's it. It's 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 a dude that looks like most of us, a woman that looks like most of the, the women that you look around. It, these are not supermodels flirting. This is just like real people uh, being kind of clumsy about their flirting, but also being really into it. And then when Galifianakis walks out of that store and he's just in cloud nine, it's very relatable. So. It goes back to what I was saying at the beginning that they made Galifianakis, they doubled down on how nasty and annoying he is. But then that makes it so much more satisfying when you get to this part of the movie and suddenly you kind of, you're happy for him and you're, you identify with him, you relate to him and want things to work out. You want him to, I don't know, survive this adventure and eventually go back and go out with Melissa McCarthy. So we move along uh, as they're having no luck actually contacting the escort service agency and figuring out, you know, who went where type of thing. Um, The ex-wife of Stu, uh, Heather Graham, Jade, I believe her name is in the movie, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, That's probably her her dancer name. She's she's moved on from that. Now she's a she's a mom. She has her own her own husband. That's not Stu. (laughs) A, A nice house. But yeah. Uh, she still knows people in the industry. So we, we see Heather Graham again, which is always great, no matter the scenario. And um, she's going to help them. You know, she's going to talk to her friends still in the industry and track them down. But uh, I mean, the the shining light, the the point of this, the lightning rod from all of this is that we we see Carlos again. Yep. Uh, I forget what his, Tyler. what his actual little name is. Tyler. There you go. Uh, the baby from the original Hangover, who's now a toddler, and this segues into Alan reconnecting with him. And this is—I mean, I assume you knew this is where this is where I was going with it. But this is Galifianakis' Oscar scene. Oh yeah, easily. Uh, he gets he gets a moment of introspection 
Yeah, he he reconnects with uh, t- uh, Tyler and he explains, you know, your name used to be Carlos and, uh, you know, I can still feel from time to time, I can still feel your little head against my chest. And so he starts asking him about his dad and, you know, asking him if he likes him. And, and then he explains to him, you know, my dad was my best friend. And and then, yeah, the uh, the introspection and the reflecting and the, the longing and the pain that comes along with this, the delivery of Zach Galifianakis saying, I really let him down. But he still can't help himself of being just this like sociopathic monster of telling Carlos <laughs> that like I was your actual dad. <laughs> to be fair, to be fair, he doesn't do it directly. Uh, Carlos slash Tyler asks him, "Are you my real dad?" And then he just can't bring himself to not lie. <laughs> he says yes. Uh, it's still it's wrong, but but you know it wouldn't be it would be just too out of character for for Alan to not be this crazy for so long. He has to do crazy things. Uh, oh, yeah, it would be so silly if he just, like, if he was, like, okay after that one moment of realization. Yep. He still has to be himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Heather Graham helps him track down exactly where Chow is. He's at the penthouse at Caesar's Palace, which you've never been to Vegas, have you? No, never. All right, well, when, all, when this fucking world gets back to where it needs to be, that's what we're doing. And then we're going to figure out a movie that we can do while we're there. We're going to go and we're going to record on location. <laughs> uh, I guess it would have to be leaving Las Vegas, honeymoon in Vegas, what happens in Vegas, Vegas vacation. We'll figure out one of them. Oh, God. Yes. The contrarians, I, I'm decreeing now, assuming the world doesn't end. There will be a contrarians on location in Vegas episode. Uh, and one of the emanating spots will be Caesar's Palace, where Leslie Chow is located fine fine establishment to hang out at and uh all the panning shots of them going through the lobby and everything got me so nostalgic and just wanting to be there i was like fuck but uh of course because chow's got so much money he's got this room on lockdown so they have to devise this plan to get in there which consists of them getting up to the roof uh alan and phil rappel down onto the balcony and uh break in but at this point you know Hell has come to dinner, and Leslie Chow has come with it. He is just, you know, coked out of his mind. Um, this is, uh, by the way, this is the second uh, best line in the movie. Uh, right before they propel down, Bradley Cooper is hanging, you know, from the, the sheets <laughs> that, that they're using to go down, and Zagalov and Akis wants to take a picture of him. And he's like, wait, wait, hold on, hold on. And Bradley Cooper, at first, he acts like, what the fuck are you doing? But then after... Galifianakis takes a picture. Bradley Cooper looks at him and is like, so did you get it? (laughs) (laughs) It's easily the most convincing delivery Cooper has in the entire movie. Yeah, yeah. It's like he couldn't help himself. You know, he, like I said, I think that the entire movie, he's trying really hard to not overshadow anybody else by being funny or being charismatic, but he couldn't help himself in this one. And and he just made me laugh. He let a little bit of uh, Phil's narcissism come through and it was it was great it was very welcome we talk about it time and time again on the podcast but those actors and those performers that realize the absurdity of the moment and he definitely realized the absurdity of this moment uh they rappel down they find their way into the hotel suite but chow's on the loose and he's uh inconsolable and just you know on god knows how many drugs he uh i thought you were gonna say one of my favorite lines where he (laughs) He's about to jump off the balcony and they're like, Chow, don't. And he's like, I can do whatever I want. I'm invisible. <laughs> and he goes, it's invincible, you fucking moron. 
but he still jumps and he's got a parachute on his back because apparently this shit's fucking San Andreas and he just pulls the ripcord <laughs> on it. And this will come into play more in real talk, but if Ken Yong's style of comedy works for you, this is one of the highlights of the movie. Of There's that kind of stone silence for a bit of watching him in the sky. All the characters are watching him fly over the uh, uh, Bellagio fountain. And it's that kind of quiet that, you know, it's 2 a.m. in Ohio in December where all the snow is on the ground. So there's no reverberation. You can't hear anything. But then it cuts to him and he's just singing R. Kelly's I Believe I Can Fly to Himself. That is top tier comedy. That Peak. is that is Peak why you get Ken comedy. Jong. <laughs> that is exactly right. Like, there's no other actor that could have pulled that off as humorously. Maybe uh, James McAvoy, but you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's but it's also a hell of a stunt. That's uh, that's Ken Jong up in the air. He <laughs> there's no there's no CGI. There's no uh, there's no trickery. He's he jumps off, he pulls the cord, and then he's paragliding. It's uh just like it's Ed Helms driving, uh, trying to catch up with him. It's uh, yeah, I was trying to think. It's, it's not really Frogger. I'm trying to think of what like original game. This is like a really hellacious version of. Yeah, it's almost like a, a a really weird game of Pong where he's he's trying to you know get under his uh, his target. He's racing through the Vegas Strip. The, the the hubris of him taking a cell phone call and then looking away <laughs> while speeding down the Vegas Strip is something of legend. But eventually he does catch his target and Chow lands on top of it and slams on the brakes and flips him off. And Ken Hong takes a hell of a bump here, but survives the the fracas. But he is incapacitated. He you know he's incapable of moving. He he's alive, but he can't speak. And uh, we skimmed past this a bit earlier, but. The deal that uh, en route to Vegas, that uh, or en route to the Caesar's Palace, excuse me, that the Wolfpack cut with Marshall is uh, basically you have to bring him to me on the outskirts of town by 6 a.m. or, you know, your friend's dead type thing. So they have him now and they have him in the trunk of the car and they have uh, the gold from the hotel suite. So they're en route to meet uh, Marshall, John Goodman, on the outskirts of town, which. Again, one of the weird things about Vegas, especially flying in there, it's just like this plot of excess in the middle of nothingness. And so they get to the outskirts of town pretty quickly, and John Goodman's there with one of his henchmen. And they do the exchange of goods, and I believe, uh, Julio, you probably understand where I'm going with this, but this is uh, John Goodman's Oscar scene here where he uh, walks up to the car, and they're like, well, what are you going to do with Chow? And he says, I just want to have a conversation. (laughs) <laughs> and then just lights up the back of the car with his gun, uh, unloads the entire clip into it, and then as the smoke is clearing and the dust is settling, he says, "End of conversation." <laughs> that's that's such a John Goodman moment. I mean, he's a complete badass the entire movie, and then here's where he he peaks, he achieves peak badassness. Uh, clearly, these guys had never seen Casino. Maybe in the world of The Hangover, Martin Scorsese doesn't exist. I don't know, but. Uh, that's all I could think of whenever uh, they mentioned somebody meeting anybody on the outside of Vegas, because that's that's where you bury the bodies. You're going to get a baseball bat to the head. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's the only thing that was missing. Uh, uh, it doesn't have to be Goodman, but maybe one of his goons 
because uh, he's there with one more other person. Uh, I guess whoever replaced Mike Epps in the chain of command, but that guy should have had a, a bat. And just starts hitting the, the trunk of the car mercilessly. <laughs> no, it, they hit Justin Bartha. It's like, where is it? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> where is Ken Jong? <laughs> They're just in a cornfield somewhere, and Justin Bartha's just getting worn out by this baseball bat. <laughs> The worst part is he he was so out of it, he didn't even know what was happening. He thought it was a real attack. <laughs> John Goodman lights up the trunk. He opens it up, and there is no Chow to be found, no Ken Hyong in there. And so he turns the gun on the wolf pack, and it seems like things are going to get pretty fucking crispy for a second. But then up from the sunroof, like an ejector seat, much like uh, Tom Hanks and Big, ejector seat, out comes Ken Hyong, shoots uh, Marshall in the back of the head along with his uh, henchmen. And uh, I think this is where he says, toodaloo, motherfuckers, which I don't know why, but that line made me laugh really hard. So Marshall and his henchmen are done for, and this is where uh, Chang and the Wolfpack split. And this is, you know, if the Academy was too timid of using uh, the Carlos scene for Galifianakis's uh, best actor scene, this would definitely be the the backup where he has basically his come to Jesus moment with Ken Hyong. Yeah, it's it's what the what the franchise has been building to, and we didn't even know it because uh, the first couple of movies, Galifianakis is more of a supporting character. But like we said, this is his movie, his movie and and Chow's movie. Uh, but this is where he grows up. He acknowledges that he's in a toxic relationship with Chow. And basically, he breaks up with him. And it's uh, it's not just kind of a brave thing to do, considering that Chow is fucking insane, um, but also pretty touching. Just the way that, uh, I don't know, you, you can see that Chow is kind of hurt by the whole thing. It, 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 in a way, cared for Alan. And, uh, and the fact that he's now on the receiving end of a breakup is just, you can see that they're both affected. And... In a bout of just genuinely good filmmaking during this discussion they're having, the reprisal of Hurt is building in the background, paying back or playing back, excuse me, to the the beginning of the movie when we first are introduced to Chow. Uh, Only this time it's like the Nine Inch Nails version, but it's a slowly bubbling cauldron of, uh, you know, the melody of that song building in the background to the point where it actually crescendos. And Alan walks off and leaves Chow behind. It's uh, tremendous, tremendous, far superior to anything that happened in Joker. Well, yeah, but that's because he he had two movies worth of buildup before you got here. You know, uh, let's talk once we get to Joker Part Three. Let's let's do a, a fair comparison <laughs> then. You know, when uh, Joaquin Phoenix is having to say goodbye to, I don't know. If his neighbor's still alive by then, you know, <laughs> he's or maybe the neighbor breaking up with him, just saying, hey, we've had some good times, but uh, you're crazy. I need to go away. As I don't know. Fuck, or, yeah. No, it would be the the dramatic reprisal of rock and roll part two. <laughs> <laughs> the acoustic version. <laughs> 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 so the wolf pack heads back to Vegas and they go back and find Stu's um or excuse me Phil's minivan and they're going to head out and Alan says uh you guys come on without me and I guess they think he's okay cuz they just ask are you do you know how the fuck to get home and he's like yeah I'll figure it out 
And he goes in and, you know, makes a pass at Melissa McCarthy and all goes well because then we get the crossfade to six or the fade in, fade out to six months later and he's getting married to her. Six and, um, months later. It's just, it, it, it has waited. <laughs> it worked out well. And um, he gives the group the speech and like, you know, we're not going to be able to hang out as much anymore. And, uh, you know, I'd still like to get together for bowling every once in a while. Then I think it, it's either Bradley Cooper or uh, old Andy Bernard has the line of, we'll figure that out later. And then they head out to walk towards the ceremony. And then we get the cross cut with them walking in sequential order throughout all the movies. And it, it's a perfect way to bring us home. Yeah. And it also kind of arrives to a very, uh, I would say, kind of unexpected conclusion or, or message because um, it's basically the movie acknowledging that the easiest way to fix your issues is to find a woman that's going to put up with them right the the big question during this movie is what the fuck do we do with alan he's a 42 year old man man child right that can barely take care of himself that is grating to most people that it, it's really uh, he really corrodes the relationships. He has a support system, but that support system can't handle him anymore. Uh, there's a moment halfway through the movie where uh, Stu turns to Phil and tells him, you know, this is just going to be our life for forever. We're going to be taking care of him for the rest of our lives. This is this is it, and it sucks. And uh, But it doesn't because they find somebody that is more than happy to take Alan for herself. Melissa McCarthy just jumps on the grenade happily. Uh, apparently she even has sex with him. So not really what you would expect from this movie to to kind of arrive to that sort of uh, very realistic, uh, practical <laughs> way of looking at life. You, you know, maybe it's been there all along. I didn't revisit the first Hangover or the second one uh, in preparation for this, but maybe there is something that maybe that is a running theme through them. You know, it's, it's always been in the first one, it was uh, Justin Bartha getting married. And in the in the second one, this is two getting married, and you know, obviously, this one's Zagalofanakis, and maybe there is something that the movie is saying that Doug Phillips and Craig Mason are saying about how, as men, we are kind of hopeless unless we find somebody who completes us. Uh, you know, in this case, it's they're they've all been straight relationships, but I mean, you could always have Alan be gay, and it would be the same thing. You know, it's like you are uh, you're a mess until you find that one person that's gonna put up with your shit. And then everything is going to be okay, not just for you, but also for the rest of the people that have been kind of enduring being uh, your friends and family. So that was kind of deep. I, I did not expect it. Uh, so I'm glad that there is a post credit scene that kind of adds some levity to the whole thing. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with what you're saying about the, the tone of that. And I definitely agree that we as men are kind of hopeless until we find our, our center, uh, something to bring us back. But yeah, so we conclude with that, and then we get the mid credit scene that is basically just an homage to the hangovers of memories past. They, you know, I, I guess there was a wild party the night before, and they're paying for the consequences the next morning. Yeah, it's it's definitely it's a, a final return to what made the movies, uh, I guess, popular. You know, the outrageousness of. Uh, of the comedy, I, I would say, because this movie, it's it's great, but it's more of a great action comedy. And the first two hangovers were great, just raunchy comedies. So it was nice to see some boobs and even some some full frontal male nudity as well <laughs> in these final, what, two minutes? 
90 seconds yeah. of the movie. Uh, I felt like it was Todd Phillips and Craig Mason acknowledging that uh, they knew where they'd come from and, and they were just paying their respects one last time. Yeah, it, it was possibly the most absurd levels they've gone to in it with uh, Ed Helms walking in with, you know, uh, breast implants of all things and in women's underwear. And Bradley Cooper, again, just like, uh, I would believe he was shoot hungover in this part of just wanting to get this project over with. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, a nice change to have Melissa McCarthy in there, just adding that. Uh, and I was about to say, it's one of two homages to The Hangover 2. No, three, excuse me. There's three references they make to it, but this being the most humorous of uh, the monkey from The Hangover 2 jumping out of nowhere onto the head of Ed Helms. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I I think everything I have left to say is real talk. We've exhausted all resources on The Hangover 3 for Contrarian's Corner. We are like Bradley Cooper uh, at the beginning of this movie. We are over it. <laughs> all right. All right, let's move it along to real talk. Who sent you? No one! No! We just wanted to see you! Liar! No one wants to see Chap! No! We... We miss you! What? We miss you, Chow! That's it! Yeah. We miss you! You miss me? Thank you so much. You miss Chow? Yeah, buddy. We love you, ciao. I hurt myself today to see if I still feel. I focus on the pain. The only thing. That's real. What have I become? What the fuck am I watching? My sweetest friend. Okay, so comparatively speaking here, we're going to backtrack. We're going to go from the first one. Hangover 1, or The Hangover. Uh, one of the movies also up there with The Dark Knight as far as people um, point to as things that have positively or adversely, depending on your point of view, molded the way the Academy approaches the best picture category. Because much like The Dark Knight, there was a big, uh, uh, I don't want to say upheaval, but there was some, uh, you know, general resentment and um, scoffing at the idea that this movie didn't get a Best Picture nomination, which is fucking hilarious to me. That that is funnier than anything in Hangover Three, uh, and I like the first <laughs> Hangover. <laughs> I do too, but I remember, uh, like they even worked it into the opening monologue with Steve Martin and Alec Baldwin. I, if I remember correctly, they hosted. They were talking about like, yeah, people thought the Hangover should have been nominated. Um, and that was that movie came out in 2009, and of course, The Dark Knight came out in 2008. So those would have been back to back, and that was right at the, um, uh, you know, the genesis of the Oscars reanalyzing the way they're going to do the Best Picture nominee and all that. So I think at that point in time, people were just looking for things to um, 
shoehorn in and use as examples. But I would hope you would agree with me. The Dark Knight is a much better movie to point to as the reason that system was uh, reassessed than The Hangover. Uh, you could have just stopped at The Dark Knight is a much better movie, period. But yes, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> so The Hangover, uh, the original, had a budget of $35 million for a box office return of around $500 million. The Hangover 2 had a budget of $80 million. So we over we went and doubled it there uh, for a box office turn of nearly six hundred million. So they at least made their investment back. And then the Hangover Three, the reason for this podcast here this evening, had a budget of over one hundred million for a box office return of uh, about three sixty. What? So Jesus. What did you think it made less money than that? Yeah. <laughs> I thought it flopped. I mean, I don't. I don't remember much. I kind of, I watched this movie well, once, it, and I kind of. It put didn't it make six hundred million dollars, but it certainly didn't flop. Yeah, I. Um, I, I don't know. I guess I was. I was. It flopped in my mind, <laughs> and critically, as it did with a lot of people. Because, uh, uh, well, just to add to your little recap, uh, the first Hangover, Run Tomatoes, seventy-eight percent. Second Hangover, Run Tomatoes, thirty-three percent. And then this one, like you mentioned, in Contrarian's Corner, 20%. Um, there is no fucking way this movie is worse than the second Hangover. I I loathe Hangover 2. There is one funny part in that movie, and it's in the credits. Uh, I, I brought it up before. It's been a while, so it's worth bringing up again. Uh, the the thing with the, when Alan has the flashback and he's picturing everybody, you, you realize that he sees the world as if they were all kids. That's pretty funny, and I think it's it's uh, at the very least it's trying. It's trying to do something different. It's more clever, or it's an attempt to be clever in a way that uh, this movie doesn't. But let's get right, into well, it, buddy. I hold the fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so, so anyway, uh, before we get into the Hangover Three, I think you and I could both agree this is just. Uh, a modern shining example that the only reason we revisited this well was to make money because there was like the first hangover just it it told the story like it's that's all there is it's not Star Wars or you know uh, Lord of the Rings or something it, that that was the movie and the only reason we revisited it was to make more money and uh and that's definitely felt in the second one because that movie is so fucking cynical. But anyway, well, yeah, I, th- that, I, I think I so. enjoy The Hangover Three, but there's no reason for it to be made. Yes, but I, I mean, if I'm gonna give it credit for anything, it would be for the fact that at least it tries to uh, do something with the with the Alan character. I mean, whether it works or not, we can we can discuss that. But I think that if you're gonna have a hangover franchise and i guess obviously the crux of it is do we even need a hangover franchise right but it's going to exist because the first movie they need money then you would think that to me you either just go all in on the joke of it's going to be the exact same movie every time which is kind of what the second one seemed to do and to me the second one would be retroactively funnier if the third one was also uh, just the same template, right? It's like they get drunk, <laughs> they wake up the next day, they don't remember anything, and Doug is gone. If uh, 
if you just kept doing that over and over, it would be just that 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 uh, repetition effect, right? Where things get funnier if you keep going, and then maybe they stop getting, being funny, and then they get funnier if you keep going. Uh, so by the time that we got to like the Hangover Ten, and the shit was still happening, and it was like more outrageous <laughs> every time, I would love it, right? Uh, that's not what they went no. with. Uh, so then, the other way to go about it is that you have a group of four characters. So why not take this as an opportunity to just focus on one character in each movie? I mean, the second one drops the ball because uh, I think, you know, the first one's about Stu and then the second one is also about Stu. <laughs> and then this one, at least they decided to do something with the Galafanakis character. And well, that is something. So why does the Hangover 3 exist beyond, you know, besides the fact that it's to make money, I guess, to flesh out the character of, uh, of Alan, you know, to the extent that it does. So maybe I'll give him that. I mean, it's not, it's not the worst idea, the worst starting point, right? If you say, if you know that you have to make another hangover movie and you choose what's going to be the driving force, well, maybe the driving force is that this one is the one where Alan grows up. Okay. Well, we're starting on something at least, uh, I think the second one is, I'll agree with you there. The second one has less of a purpose. The The second one is just, oh, well, we're just going to do the exact well, same the, thing. The second one, because, <laughs> well, yeah, because fucking Todd Phillips didn't write the first one. Right. And then, like, Todd Phillips did write the second one. And it was like, uh, I can just see him writing the exact same movie as the first one, but thinking it's somehow completely different. Yeah. And, you know, at that point, you know, because he made this huge, that most at that point the most successful R-rated movie of all time, they're just like, yeah, fuck it, let's do that again. But I remember watching that movie, the second one. I remember literally watching it and saying out loud, "Are they just doing the same fucking movie?" And then realizing they're doing the same movie. Yeah, and- but but wouldn't it be funny if that was on purpose? I mean, I'm not saying that they. No, 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 okay. If that was the joke, right? If they were, if they were doing yes, it, but the joke yes. was that it's supposed to be the same movie. Uh, See, yes, I, I, I agree with that. In that, in a sense, I kind of wish the third one was that, right? And it was just like the same, like you were just saying, there were ten movies of that over and over again. So uh, let's do quotes because there are people like me that enjoy this, and then we'll. <laughs> We'll get into it. All right. Uh, we start with uh, Jay Olson from Cinemax Tape, who says, Though the following might read like faint praise, The Hangover Part 3 closes out what's likely the best comedy trilogy of all time, and on a genuinely uh, respectable note. <laughs> calm the fuck down. <laughs> well, I, I can't even think of uh, comedy trilogies. Uh, I mean, he said of all, of all time, so maybe if you go back to... Uh, I don't know. I mean, the Black, the Black Panther, the, the Pink Panther has the Black. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the Pink Panther has like five. Well, there's or six. more than three police academies. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to think of comedy trilogies. I, I, I mean, he might be onto something in the sense of it may be the only prominent comedy trilogy ever. Yeah. If only Wayne's World had made it one more. Oh no, they peaked with two. They were good. <laughs> they knew when to stop. Colin Rithdy from Bangkok Post says, Ironically, the most subdued hangover is perhaps the most watchable too. This is the Bangkok Post, so, y- you know, they kind of had some skin in the game after the second one being... They were like uh, the New York City Tourism Board with Jason Takes Manhattan. <laughs> yes. They just completely, like, 
picketed and protested the second one. <laughs> yeah. Then uh, Francesca Rutkin from the New Zealand Herald says, It's a more mature ending this time, a fitting way to wrap up the series and signal it's time for us to let go of these poorly behaved rascals. Did you feel, now that we're in real talk, did you feel the weight of the of the goodbye at the end? Did you, did you get, I mean, I don't think that you choked up, but did, did you feel like, oh, this is kind of emotional? No. Yeah, me either. But that's what they were going for. <laughs> so, obviously, it worked for Francesca Rutkin. And then, finally, Matthew Bond from the Mail on Sunday UK says, The Wolfpack have earned this final bow. I guess. I mean, if, if, you, if you buy into this, if you really invested in, in a good buy for these characters, I mean, that's great, because that's what this movie tried to do, and, and obviously works for you. But I... It's not even that I didn't need it. It's just that I, I just couldn't connect to it in any way. There, there are a couple of moments. I the the the, the Galifianakis Oscar the, clip is good. I, I actually yes. I actually like that. That was that was good. Uh, it John Goodman's really good. No pun intended. He is, but he's also not that funny. Even though he has my favorite line in the movie, <laughs> I I almost feel like they didn't tell it's him that he was funny. in the comedy. You know, he. I mean, wardrobe aside. He's just he's just showing up to be scary. But then again, it's not like anybody so, here is particularly funny. It was a big thing we talked about in our Black Sheep episode where you said, if Chris Farley's comedy works for you, then you're going to like it. But if it doesn't, like it didn't for you, yes. or you, it, that you don't, it doesn't work for you. I think Ken Young is fucking hilarious. Oh, buddy. And so, like, yeah. <laughs> like, the... The part where he eats the dog food, that's not funny. But when he looks up and Ed Helms looks back at him, he goes, oh, God, so gross. Like, I laughed so hard at that. Oh, dude. And well, I think we just the, figured out what's the big divide between uh, you and I when it comes to this movie. No, 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 no. Well, we'll get to what the where my true thing kicks in with this. But, like, and that Ken Hong singing, I believe I can fly, like, the cut to that where it's, like, you know, it's that stone silent that really really silent like the kind of quiet right before a hooker takes a piss on you uh it's... <laughs> and then it cuts to him singing i believe i can fly i and props to david tell that's his joke not mine but um that's funny and then um the hurt thing that that is hilarious to me that's the funniest part in the movie where it, like you just hear the the acoustic riff of hurt and then it cuts to him singing it so i say all that to say if Ken Hong's not your bag, this movie's going to be a rough watch because he is the comedy in it. Like, um, yep. Even his like the it's not anything he says, but that whole sequence. Some of these shot like this is like a Michael Bay movie in some aspects. All of the action sequences are have that like you know that muted sheen over them, like a lot of like Joe Carnahan or Michael Bay or even you know like a Guy Ritchie movie would. Specifically, like the jailbreak scene, and then also when um, uh, John Goodman's recounting like his interactions with Leslie Chow, and they're like they're talking in the jail cell, and then he like jacks off the phone and throws it at him, and then streaks down the window. Yeah. Like all those shots are very Bay esque, and even that really. It's like an awesome shot, but in not the right movie of uh, when Chow gets out of the cop car as the sun setting. And so you just see a silhouette yep. getting out of the car. It's fucking great. So 
So before we go yeah, too much further into this, I don't want it to seem like I think this is a great movie because I don't. It's not it's a movie I own. I own it on Blu-ray. Uh I own the first hangover and I own this one. I don't own the second one. It's not a movie that, you know, if push came to shove and I had to, you know, raid my collection and just get down to the bare essentials, it's not one I would keep. But there are things about this movie I enjoy. The most of which is that it is still so good, despite the three main characters not giving a fuck about the movie. (laughs) And it goes to show, and we've talked about this before in the past with bad movies or movies that succeed despite themselves. It separates the men from the boys, uh, you know, or the women from the girls, depending on your perspective in terms of acting ability where Bradley Cooper's 10% is better than most people's 100%. Oh, I don't, I wouldn't go that far. I I I think I joked about it in Contrarian's Corner, but in now in real talk, I have to say that his disinterest was one, it was noticeable. And I thought, you know, because I haven't seen this movie, I hadn't seen this movie since it came out. And I think maybe did we watch it together? Do we screen it or uh, maybe the only thing I really remember about this being released was me. I, we might have watched. It. I remember watching it, and being surprised, and then also uh, I don't want to call him friend of the podcast because he's never been on. I guess acquaintance. We've mentioned him before a gentleman by the name of John Golson fucking hated this movie. I just remember <laughs> him going off on it. When I say his ten percent, make no mistakes about it. Bradley Cooper is not uh, in any. Uh, sense of the word good in this movie but like his autopilot is still more convincing than a lot of people's you know full force yeah i mean i think that that's maybe it's partly because we know he's bradley cooper so even though he's doing nothing in this movie we still project what we know of bradley cooper onto him and that somehow gives his lack of performance still some sort of character um but it, it it could also be that, well, he is playing a character that we've known for two movies now. And th- that's what I was going to say. And not having seen it since it came out, I wasn't sure if maybe because we joke about it so much that we were uh, exaggerating how noticeable it is that he is just not even at, at a quarter of a tank here. He's just like blinking on empty and he, you know, and it, it shows. And, and no, we're, we were not exaggerating. As I was watching, I was like, man, he His really... character didn't have a five o'clock shadow written. He just showed up every day like that. <laughs> yes. He's, I mean, I guess it's to his credit that he made me laugh a couple of times. But, but it really, when I think of his character, and now maybe I'm looking at the previous two movies with rose-tinted glasses, you know, but I always thought that he was Dude, the most hangover two fucking sucks. I, I don't want to hear any praise for that. Man. Even even if if you say he's that the movie sucks, I think that his character was more lively than than he is in this movie. In this movie, he just he he is nothing. He he's just doing nothing. He's just there to to deliver exposition. To be Bradley Cooper. Yeah, to be Bradley Cooper, to say fuck like fifty times to react to crazy things that happen in the most uh, unfunny way. You know, he's not trying to be funny. He's just he's just acting like a normal dude would if uh, if something crazy like like a bunch of uh, roosters came at you. You know, there's nothing funny about his performance in in that reaction. He's just acting as if they really threw a rooster at Bradley Cooper. And he was like, oh, my fucking God, what's going on? You know, he definitely doesn't act like he's in a comedy. He's just there. I don't know, you know, because you have to have him because he's in the he's the biggest star out of all of them in in the franchise, uh, and then you know Ed Helms, 
he's I don't think that he's ever been the funniest thing in the franchise, but he was definitely uh, at least I guess trying to be funny, you know, like the guy that's always complaining. And here it's just he's still that guy, but he doesn't because the story is not about him anymore. He doesn't really have anything going on. Uh, so really, it, it just to me, it just feels like they put all their eggs in the Galifianakis basket. And much like Kim Jong, I think a lot of it's going to have to do with how do you feel about the Zach Galifianakis shtick? And I find it okay. Uh, I think, like I said in Contreras Corner, they really doubled down on it in this one. I felt that he was just a lot more unpleasant than the past two movies. Yeah. Uh, and, and that makes it really hard because if you don't find it that funny, but you actually found him just irritating, that works against the movie. But still, you know, you have him driving the movie along with, with Ken Jeong. And yeah, to me, Ken Jeong, a little bit of Ken Jeong goes a long way. And <laughs> I, I've i enjoyed him in, in, I remember in Community, I liked him a lot more before they made him a recurring character. And then he was just there all the time. His His style of comedy, from what I've experienced, is very just over the top and I just don't find anything he does in this movie funny I can't think of a single thing in this movie in the other two he probably made me laugh but in in these two the the way he talks the way he moves (laughs) the the you don't think the hurt scene is funny no and I as it was as it was playing I remember that that's that's one of your highlights and I was like I don't get it man and it's not all him I've said it before in this podcast, and I referenced it in Contrarian's Corner. The the bad karaoke trope, I'm so over it. I've been over it for years. Uh, to me, when a movie made post-2000s has a sequence where some guy or girl is badly singing karaoke, that's just desperation. That's like, really couldn't you go anywhere else? <laughs> Here they go to Tijuana, but it's still just basically, oh, isn't it funny that Kim Jong is, is doing a bad version of hurt uh, and you know you could i could try to give him more credit and say well at least the the song choice is sort of relevant with what's happening but no it still didn't work for me i and also the i believe i can fly moment didn't work i just it's like you said if that kind of stuff doesn't work man it's just screeching nails on a chalkboard you know every time he's on screen which is so much in this movie uh i think that like i said earlier the sort of saving grace or the attempt at saving grace would be character work in this case, just to see what can we do to redeem a character that seems just so kind of unsalvageable, uh, the character of Zagalofanakis, right? Especially as presented in this movie. And the fact that they kind of give him an, an arc, that they give him, you know, that really good moment with the kid, and then that they give him... Uh, a believable relationship with uh, Melissa McCarthy in the world that the movie exists in, not in the real world. Uh, that's probably about as good as it's as it gets for me, and that's not very good. That's just you know, well, they tried. <laughs> yeah, that's. I mean, that's all fair. I'm not going to discount your uh, input on that. And the the bad karaoke thing is uh, definitely a bad trope. I I love it in this because like. Um, I had referenced this in Contrarian's Corner. I I fucking love the reprisal of Hurt when it comes back in in the end when Alan yes. says goodbye to him. I, I think that's so great. And this, I, I guess the easiest way I can express my opinion on this movie and why I like it 
If Hangover 2... Okay, so this is the way this movie would have worked where it would have been a, a commercial and a critical success. This is the path, you fucks, as Joey Diaz would say. Uh, all their respective careers went the same way, and this movie came out 10 years after the first one. There was no Hangover 2. This was the first sequel, and it was presented almost exactly to this. People would have taken to it much better. So you're saying it, part of the goodwill was spent with Hangover 2? All of the goodwill was spent with it. <laughs> Because they just made the exact same fucking movie. My thought is the first Hangover is such a beloved movie that I'm trying to think of something it's equal in terms of a, a comedy that I've lived through in my lifetime where people, you know, associate uh, so much with these characters and these you know, these ideas and these philosophies um, and these tropes in the movie. I, I, there, I think of was... Superbad just because I had a similar theatrical experience watching it, but I don't know if it would match uh, what you're thinking. Even then, I mean, super bad. There's, yeah, it's the same thing. If they ever make a super bad sequel, it would have to be way down the line because there's no purpose for a follow up the next year. You know, it's like, okay, these guys had to have learned their lesson. With The Hangover and this, specifically The Hangover 3, it's so different. And the idea of the plot is fascinating enough to carry it that, well, what happened in this first movie set off this really insane, you know, Rube Goldberg uh, series of events that way down the line, it fucked all this shit up that I think, you know, so the first one came out uh, 2009. So last year, 2019 Memorial Day weekend, if they released this exact same movie, of course, eliminating all the references of the second one, because in this fantasy of mine, it never existed. It would have been so much more well-received because it's this movie, you know, we're not sick of these characters yet. We're not sick of this idea. This is something fresh and new. But then we get all the, uh, you know, the homages. We get to see Carlos and we get Heather Graham back. And, uh, you know, Chow is this guy who was this character. He was this minor character in the first one. But the events of the first one made him this, like, monolithic fucking uh, cretin or this uh, convict or what have you. And... I think there this movie is good, and I think there was a situation in which it could have been perceived as good, but the way it was executed was not good, and it had the unfortunate duty of following The Hangover 2, which is just a very poor excuse for a movie and a poor excuse for a sequel. And um, it sucks because I think... Uh, there's a lot of positive merit to this movie. and But like I said, I don't know if it's Todd Phillips just trying to write the most condescending movie he can possible, but <laughs> we'll, we'll never we'll never know. All of this shit that I'm talking about happened within the span of fucking four years. The first, second, and third hangover was all within four years, and so there's there's really, in that time period, there's no way to digest it. That's, that's fucking, that's 80s, uh, Paramount with Friday the 13th one every year just fucking do it don't give them time to process things It, and that's what separates you know art from just fucking dribble and yeah but uh, but I wish that I could be as, as enthusiastic or at least as uh, I don't know into the idea of, of how it deviates idealistic. from the formula well I just the thing is I don't see 
them breaking away from the formula in this one as a positive. I I think it's kind of silly to have a movie that purports to be a hangover movie and then not having them get drunk and then wake up the next morning and have to piece things together. You know, you can do that without it being a carbon copy of the original and, you know, by now the second one. Uh, this is really... Okay, so you have the same characters, but it really... It almost feels like how they say that, you know, I, I remember which, I think it's a, the second Die Hard, maybe the second and the third one, that they're not, they were not written as Die Hard movies. You know, they just grabbed like some script and then they made it into a Die Hard movie. Uh, it yeah. almost feels like that, this was something like that where it's not, it didn't have a, an origin as a as a Hangover movie, but they were like, well, fuck it, we just cast the the actors from The Hangover, and then it becomes a Hangover movie. Uh, so it's not even just that that it's not funny or that it's not even trying to be funny, right? This is more interested in being like an, an action adventure movie, but also that what I consider elements that are uh, uh, vital to the franchise are not there. To me, it, it, and you know, you can obviously disagree and just to you maybe uh, what makes the franchise, the Hangover franchise uh, can be different, but to me, the basic idea of these guys go out and party and then they wake up the next morning and they have to retrace their steps and figure out what happened. And, you know, the whole movie is them piecing together what happened. That's what I loved about the first one and what I would look forward in a Hangover sequel. Uh, The problem with the second one is that, you know, it doesn't have... It's not just that that's the same. It's that everything else is the same. Honestly, to me, the perfect evolution of the franchise is to have one of the guys, a different guy every time, be the one that's missing. And then put them in different situations. But still, to to keep the very basic idea of, oh, you know, when you like wake up after uh, a hard night of drinking and you don't remember stuff? Okay, well, this movie is going to be about that. And, you know, how crazy can we get with that? There's nothing of that in, in The Hangover 3. And... If that's on me, because I shouldn't have expected that <laughs> from from the movie, and really what I should have been uh, expecting, and just be happy that we got is that oh well, here are these characters again, and now they've moved past that, and now they're not even drinking; they're just I don't know, you know, running away from criminals and and getting into into life or death situations have nothing to do with uh, with drinking or being hangover. Or, or Yeah, but, I mean, that's kind of why I enjoy it. The ha- It's only the hangover, quote-unquote, in name. It's I love the idea of they learned their lesson from this first movie, but the shit they did in the first movie caused all this wild stuff to happen. And caused you know these things beyond their comprehension to happen just because they got really fucked up one night and you know I find that so much more narratively fascinating than just the same movie over and over again and again like I mentioned from time to time and I just mentioned the you know Paramount Friday the Thirteenth and I love those movies where it's the same shit over and over and over again but you know you've never had the level of um, directorial writing acting you know the level of skill in this it, it, it it's worthy of a higher movie the second go around and that's what i'm saying like so the it seems to me the end pass right now is 
you're fine with the idea of this becoming just like this quadrilogy or just never-ending saga of them just getting fucked up every time and having to retrace their steps. Whereas me, it was like the first one was so good, it should have stood alone on its own. And then I think if they did want to revisit it, it would have had to have been a, a, a ways down the line and a movie like this that's so radically different from the first one that it basically just shows that they're adults, they've grown up, but the mistakes they made on that one fateful night are coming back to haunt them. And, you know, I, I, it should be, I find that the hangover presents consequences. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I you're, it's you're not right. Like saying like, Oh, you, you should, you should regret and pay for all the things you did when you're fucked up. But I'm just saying that from a perspective of like, you know, uh, theater and dramatic storytelling. Cause they, they had this big epic night, you know, 10 years ago. And they thought that, you know, finally they had, you know, tied up all the loose ends, but then, you know, they come into this and then they have to retress all their steps and basically go back through it. And I, I think, like I said, I think this movie's good and deserved uh, a better platform than it was given. And I didn't mean to cut you off, Julio. I was just deep in my thoughts. No, I was just gonna say that I, you're right. Like I agree with that stuff. I think that the the only amendment I would make to that is that I guess I don't find the characters interesting enough for me to want to see them outside of this scenario of, oh, we got drunk, let's just go uh, retrace our steps and see what happened this time. You know, uh, so to me, it's like, I, I agree. To me, it, it should have ended with the first one. And but the difference is that for me, if you're going to have to make a sequel, then, then let's just keep the the formula of uh, uh, lost memory and retracing the steps and then just go crazy with it and go ridiculous and whatever. What they do in this one, you know, didn't work for me. And, you know, I could be speaking more fondly of it if I found it funnier, which I don't. So obviously that affects me. If I if I was a big uh, King Jong fan, then maybe I wouldn't mind. I'd be like, yeah, sure. I don't care as long as we get to hang out with these guys again. But it even then, I think I would tell you, man, it looks like it's time to call it quits just because of how... <laughs> it, and even then, I think that the it's telling the direction that Todd Phillips' career went into. You know, there's the man that made Joker... Uh, last year and kind of uh, you know he's been somewhat vocal on social media about how he didn't even want to try to keep making comedies in this political climate or whatever and this is when i was watching this movie this time i could see how yeah you know he really doesn't seem very interested in being funny i kind of get the feeling that whatever comedy there is in hangover 3 is coming from from like you know Ken Jong just you know they told him hey be funny in this one and then he you know he was just funny or uh, Todd Phillips's uh, sensibilities in this movie uh, seem to be more uh, geared toward just shooting it in a cool way and and building up to a cool uh, set piece and and really hitting like the, the emotional moments whatever they are so it's funny when you see that well years later he ended up directing Joker which is a completely a different movie, movie. <laughs> you know whether you think it's good or bad you could at least kind of you can connect the dots from the hangover three and yeah. and joker and be like oh okay so maybe much like bradley cooper his his mind was already like somewhere else and he was just <laughs> unconsciously subconsciously leaning that way yeah um i did read that like ken hyong wasn't even really supposed to be part of this trilogy to begin with but galifianakis like not petitioned or politicked, but basically just 
fought for his inclusion. So it, it leads you to wonder what the hell the comedy aspect would have been in the third one if <laughs> Ken Hong wasn't around. Galafinakis looked uh, at him. He's like, I'm not going to carry this whole thing on my shoulders. You need to get me at least <laughs> one other person. Bradley Cooper does have the one endearing moment of him rappelling down the side of uh, Caesar's palace and making sure he gets a good picture of himself. I thought that was great. There's one thing that I didn't mention in Contreras Corner because I, I felt it was more appropriate in real talk, and that is that I actually like Ed Helms as Stu. I think he is sort of the unsung hero as far as performances. Uh, not necessarily because he's being funny. He's definitely not particularly funny in this movie but i will interject real quick before you finish your point one of my favorite comedic scenes in this movie is him in the pharmacy trying to get those drugs and he's sweating profusely (laughs) and he's like uh the little teenage pharmacist is like these are all red flags and he's like i'm where i need to call the prescribing doctor and he's like aha i am the prescribing doctor (laughs) and the guy goes oh boy (laughs) uh yeah i I, th- I have when I think of Ed Helms, his persona to me is, uh, you know, Andy from The Office or just whatever other over the top characters he's played in other comedies. And uh, but that's funny because the first time I ever saw him in anything was the first Hangover. And to me, when he plays Stu, he goes into a very different personality. You know, he's he's Stu is the the straight laced of the group so he's nothing like Ed Helms in other parts that I've seen him so I always appreciate that if nothing else even if he's not making me laugh I was like wow this feels like uh like Ed Helms really keeping it together reining it in because that's not you know he's not supposed to be the the -the over-the-top character in this one so that's cool I'll, I'll I'll give that that compliment to the entire franchise yeah and I mean Galifianakis has all his dry and droll delivery throughout it and I really for as out of place as it seems, I do like his Oscar scene, and I do like just the badassness of John Goodman, as we mentioned before, the con- end of conversation. I do love that also. <laughs> like I said, there was a possibility for this to be a good movie at one point in time. It's just when it came, no one really fucking cared. And at the point that it did come, it should have just been another, oh, these guys get fucked up and have to retrace their steps. The fact they released this two years after Hangover 2... And they tried to, you know, pull this off was not the best judgment. I mean, it made $400 million, so obviously I'm wrong. But it's, uh, I just think for what I'm able to take away from this movie, I really feel like there was another point in time this could have worked really well. Uh, I will say they did not stick the landing. That stupid fucking uh, mid-credits. I was going to ask you. Ed Helms with boobs. No, so fucking dumb. It, it's obvious what they should have done. The credits should have been the pictures from Galifianakis's and uh, uh, Melissa McCarthy's wedding. Because the first two, you know, end with, like, the pictures. The only good joke in two is one of the pictures in the post-credits. And uh, if they announced The Hangover 4 for, you know, next year or whatever, whenever Corona lets us Let's just be. It should have been this. <laughs> no, no, no. They announce it, and the trader tells you that it's it's not it's no longer these guys. It's their kids. So it would have to be maybe a few years longer later, or you know, maybe you age them or whatever. But they all have teenage kids now, and uh, that'll happen, dude. Yeah, and it's. I mean, they're still in the movie, but it really is about their their teenage kids getting drunk and then losing one of their own and then having. It, 
you know, it's the first hangover only with with teenagers and and the dads have lived through it, so they have to they maybe they help them. I don't know. But would you go watch it or are you done with that with the hangover franchise as it is? See, that's the thing. I feel like I finished with these characters. I, f- I feel like I finished with these characters in the franchise with this. It just it still feels like uh, life on its side of like it's a satisfying conclusion, but it, it it still left me unsatisfied just with the way it it was delivered and the way it was handled. Like I, again, if this movie had come out last year and been the only sequel to it, it would have given me such an overwhelming sense of closure. But with this, it's just, it just, I can't help but feel kind of just, it's cynical and I feel kind of cheated by it. And it sucks because like I said, I do like this movie standalone, but the, the idea of it just, kind of bankrupted me on the whole franchise so no i if a movie came out i'd wait and catch it on tnt two years after it was released and, and just to be clear real quick before we do go any further i don't know if i ever say this on the podcast i'm pretty sure i've told julio i do think hot tub time machine is a better movie than the first hangover yeah i probably agree with that i haven't rewatched them that's not true. I've rewatched The Hangover, the first one, and I remember thinking it was funnier when I saw it in the theaters, but it was still good. Uh, Hot the Time Machine, I loved in theaters, and I, I should probably rewatch it. But I can totally see it has more heart to begin with, so I can see how that would that would date better. I think this movie's a B. I think its uh, failings are a victim of its time and placement. Um, so on your your little star skadoodle, Julio, where is it ranked? Well, if it was just this movie on its own, if I was judging it uh, in isolation from the rest of the franchise, uh, it would be two stars because it's it wouldn't be my cup of tea, but it would be harmless. I think it loses half a star because I think that it's not just a movie that I don't care about. It's a movie that actively fails at being a sequel they they basically did what i didn't want them to do with the franchise uh, as as we've talked <laughs> about I, I that's really our big difference as i just don't think if this movie if there wasn't a hangover sequel if, if hangover 2 didn't exist and this movie came out today i would be annoyed by the same things but some of the same things that annoy me today which is like how the fuck is this a hangover sequel you know it's like it, it's it's almost nothing like the original movie in the core values so i'm gonna give it one and a half uh come fight me all of you who love the hangover three uh which i don't know i'm assuming <laughs> some of you are there there's no way that alex I'm is out sure there it, by himself i was about to say it starts and ends with me i'm pretty sure nah i'm sure todd phillips still thinks fondly of this movie all right, so before we move into plugs, we have some listener feedback, which we always appreciate. We have former uh, podcast guest Jordan uh, coming in to weigh in his thoughts on Blue Velvet as we had uh, called him out. For <laughs> I don't know that we called him talking out. Talking shit. We, we requested uh, some clarification on his thoughts. We put him on the spot. So uh, Jordan did send us a, a little excerpt to put in so we're gonna listen to it and see what his beef is with uh old d lynch and blue velvet contrarians this is jordan replying to y'all's episode on watching blue velvet which i also watched a few months ago that was my first time watching blue velvet and i didn't necessarily love it i think my main problem with it was that it seemed like 
David Lynch gave precedent to commentary over narrative throughout the entire film. And that's not that's not a bad thing. I like when movies do that. But the problem with it in Blue Velvet is that the narrative's really good and interesting. It starts out like a classic neo-noir detective story about this kid who finds an ear in a field and then wants to find out what the story behind it is. But then Lynch constantly grabs us by the ears and forces us to listen to what else he has to say about it. Instead of just really cleverly planting the seeds of that commentary within a really good narrative. So both are kind of watered down by the other trying to <laughs> trying to have the spotlight. It it just seems like it's too much going on at one time. It It's very gross in a way that I know Lynch wants it to be, so he accomplished what he was going for. It just didn't work for me in a crazy good way. Um, but it's a film that I'm certainly going to revisit at some point. I might need a, a six full six months or maybe even a full calendar year between viewings, but I will watch it again. I, I respect Lynch's creativity and passion. I, I like the, the construct of the film. It's very well made. It's just eh, a little too rough around the edges for me in the way to where if anyone but David Lynch made it, it, it me, I, as an aspiring filmmaker, if I came out with Blue Velvet and showed it to you guys, you'd be like, Jordan, what the hell is this? But because it has David Lynch's name on it, it it's something that we hold up a little higher. And I try not to do that when I watch movies, and Blue Velvet is a really good way for me to practice separating art from artist. Um, so that's that's really my main problem with it. it. It is very well made, though, and I can't wait to watch it again. But, yep, that's that's all. Thanks for... I tried to keep it short because I know this is going to go within the runtime of y'all's new episode, which I can't wait to listen to. So thanks for asking me to send you something and give you my take on it. All right, so Alex, do you think I think we kind of we might have touched on this during the episode, but uh, if Blue Velvet came out today, but it wasn't a David Lynch film, it was just a uh, a Jordan Mans film, or or even well, not Jordan because we know Jordan, so somebody that we don't know, it was uh, Michael Smith's film. Do you think that you would cut it less slack because it's not David Lynch? Do we we specifically fucking said that on the podcast? <laughs> we were like. We we said like why does it happen because David Lynch we said that in Contrarian's Corner and Real Talk on it yeah I mean a, a huge part of that's built into it being David Lynch at the same time uh, I think there's definitely weight to what Jordan said I think regardless of the filmmaker though there's a certain portion of that movie that no matter who was behind the camera certain aspects of that movie are going to work for you more than others. Like we talked about when we recorded, my whole take on the the whole uh, Trey character, or Kyle McClanahan, whatever. What, what's his name in the movie? I don't fucking remember. <laughs> Kyle McLachlan is his name in real life. Charlotte's fiance from Sex and the City. My whole read on his character about just distracting himself from real life issues by immersing himself in this weird fucking world just to get away from everything. That's something that, regardless of the filmmaker, you know, that's a read I could take away from it. And the weird aspects of it, obviously, if you know what what you're dealing with, yeah, you're going to attribute that to David Lynch. I'd be more interested to show this movie to, like, you know, um, uh, you know, someone who has no fucking film knowledge at all. Someone that just goes to the movies every once in a while and doesn't really, like, pay attention to directors and things like that. Those are the real ways we would get, like, opinions about shit like this. Because... The people in our circle that know so much about this, are, it's so hard to get an honest opinion about it. Well, I wouldn't say honest. I, I think to get a, an, uh, I guess, maybe more objective opinion, 
Because yeah, uh, that, that's the word I was looking for. Thank you, objective. Yeah, yeah. You you come into it with uh, already carrying the the David Lynch stigma baggage, whatever you want to call it, and and the LB, the Lynch baggage. <laughs> yeah, the filter. I would say you know you when you're watching the movie, you're filtering it through that that David Lynch uh, sensibility. So you kind of know what to expect, and and when something goes weird, you uh, you can probably tolerate more of it because you know that that's just Lynch. Uh, but still, it, it, I mean. The main reason we asked for Jordan's uh, uh, feedback was because we knew he didn't like it, and and I wanted to know why. And he he kind of said it here at one point. He said that uh, it was it was a little too gross at times, and I can totally get that. I mean, you said it in the episode where you wouldn't blame anybody for just walking away from it if it was just too much. It's and it can be. It can definitely be. Yeah, and we actually had more. Uh... Listener feedback on the movie. Uh, ben from Filmbusters weighed in with his thoughts as well. So we're going to cue over to that and see what old Ben has to say about this matter. How are you doing, guys? I wanted to send you a little voice memo because I did listen to your Blue Velvet episode a couple of weeks back or however long ago it was when it was released. And I really enjoyed it. You guys said um, that this this film was one of those films that was a good entry level one potentially for lynch uh it was the, the most accessible in that it has that beginning middle and end coherent narrative which is absolutely true um and strangely i think the reason that it is that way is because he was inspired by a dream to write it so it's no surprise that lynch loves dream logic dreamscapes everything is a dream in his films he gets real dreamy when he's writing the stories and directing things to the point where you get the sense of a thing a feeling of something without the articulation of the thing happening whether that's in dialogue or how the scene plays out but strangely and i want to read this to you this is the other reason why it took me a while to to send this memo to you because i wanted to find this quote and i also wanted to rewatch uh, the film itself so this is a quote that he gave on dreams i love dream logic I just like the way dreams go, but I've hardly ever gotten ideas from dreams. I get more ideas from music or from just walking around. On Blue Velvet, though, I was really struggling with the script. I wrote four different drafts, and I had some problems with it near the end. Then one day, I was in an office, and I was supposed to go in and meet somebody in the next office. A secretary was there, and I asked her if I could have a piece of paper, because I suddenly remembered that the night before I'd had this dream, and there it was. There were three little elements that solved those problems. And that's the only time that's happened. So a dream actually gave birth to one of the most coherent films Lynch has done, apart from the, the straight story. Um, but I just thought that was interesting. And I think because of that, Lynch was actually limited in his creation of Blue Velvet because he brought logic in a very real and tangible way. A dream inspired him and then he was able to succinctly accentuate something in a way that he does it in other films. And it, it works, it works. But for me, I love, make me make me confused as hell. But don't just do it for the sake of it. Have, have an idea, but leave me bewildered. And he didn't leave me so bewildered in this one. And I wanted more bewilderment. And also the final thing I just wanted to say quickly was I studied this film when I was at university, which is going back like... 17 years now and for the longest longest time this has always been my interpretation of the end scene and it was that that idyllic setting in the home now the the demon the darkness has been vanquished that idyllic setting 
was false. It was fictional. It doesn't exist. It was just surface. It was there covering up all the darkness underneath. That's why the Robin looks so false. That's why you get the over-the-top happiness from everyone. And my interpretation of it always was, well, this is facade. Just like we see at the beginning of the film, we pan down beneath the picket fence and the green grass and we see what lies beneath. So this is just a reminder that it's bubbling beneath the surface. And while I do think that is true for a lot of Lynch's stuff, I actually think, now that I've come to know Lynch a bit better, that he is one of the most optimistic, positive, loving guys in the world who truly believes that love can conquer all and that light can consume darkness. And having rewatched Blue Velvet, my interpretation of it is darkness has been vanquished. The Robins have come. Love is there. Peace is there. And this is maybe over-the-top idyllic, yes, but... It's a fucking optimistic ending, and I never viewed it that way until now. Anyway, my two cents. Keep up the good work, guys. Love, love, love what you do. Please keep doing it. You're my favorite podcasters, and uh, I, will, I will listen and follow you to the end of the world, guys. So keep doing it. That's it for now. Goddamn. Wrap that up with some high praise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's that's how you get uh, your your sound clip played on our show. Just just say really nice things about us at some point. Thank you, Ben. We appreciate that contribution as well. And um, I think it's fascinating. Have some interesting points to to have somebody you know like Jordan, who's pretty cool on Lynch, and then contrasting it with Ben, who seems to be just the the ultimate David Lynch fan. It's interesting to hear that feedback, and it's interesting, especially just a movie that's so. In a lot of aspects, it's like paint thrown at a wall, uh, but it's inspired so much debate and discussion just over the course of like two weeks or whatever, three weeks it's been since we've discussed it. Because, you know, it's certainly something I've thought about since and brought up with, you know, a uh, friend of the podcast, Reed, and, you know, uh, he talked to my dad about it and my sister and all the different people have seen it. And I think it's the mark of a entrancing filmmaker that, you know, all these different points of view come from this movie that's really just about this dude that finds his ear in a field and kind of just sees where it takes him. <laughs> I really, my big question now is what was the dream that helped David Lynch crack the code? You know, he said he was stuck on the script. So uh, did he one night have the dream of uh, just the, the guy bleeding from the mouth and ears with the brain exposed? And then he woke up and he's like, I got it. <laughs> This is this is what was missing from the third act. He just no. He saw that blue, that crushed velvet nightgown, and woke up. <laughs> I've got it. <laughs> he woke Get up me with MGM the blue velvet. on the phone. <laughs> uh, he woke up with the with the blue velvet in his mouth, and it's like this. We're onto something here. <laughs> and he had that gas mask to the. He had passed out from huffing it too hard. <laughs> the the oxygen tank next to him. Yeah. Uh, Interesting feedback. I mean, it's been a few weeks since I watched. I've watched a lot of movies since then, so it's not as fresh in my mind. But, man, definitely encourage more and more of that. If we can get more and more feedback like that, it'll keep the discourse going. But oh, I, think I, that, I can't wait. Again. I mean, at this point, we haven't posted the uh, the No Holds Barred episode, but uh, I, I can't wait for the hot takes, <laughs> the, the philosophical debates <laughs> about that movie. <laughs> Jordan and Ben, uh, God... I, I can't imagine them like, what the fuck is this? Um, <laughs> I'm actually, just to close some Blue Velvet, I'm pretty fascinated that uh, basically the knowledge that Ben has of David Lynch being a, an optimist colors his view of the ending. 
because you might remember my take on the ending is completely different. It's it's what he had originally, which is that it's it's all fake. It's it's fake happiness. You know, it's it's a happy ending that has still all the darkness underneath, but now he's grown to see it as a as a sincerely optimistic ending, just based on what David Lynch is like as a person. So I'm surprised there's disagreement here. That's the prevailing theme is that, you know, love and caring trumps all the evil in the world. That's his uh, modus operandi. I I think that just because it's so over the top in Blue Velvet, I my instinct was to react to it as in like, oh, he's making fun of it. He's saying, oh, look how happy they are. But really, it's still fuck. There's there's many uh, Dennis Hoppers in the world underneath. Your immediate instinct was fuck you. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That was even before we were quarantined. (laughs) <laughs> oh man that's a hell of a movie to watch right now like oh look at this rich white boy he gets to go out to restaurants and people's apartments walking in fields he can touch that ear without washing his hand after <laughs> he doesn't even have any purell on him uh so closing with plugs as always our perennial plugs uh the festive years who provide our opening and closing tracks they always kick us off with uh, last stand, they take us home with summer of '99. Julio, plug that beautiful bastard that designed our logo. That beautiful bastard is Hans Rothgeser. Uh He he does so many things. You can learn about them at his website mildemonios.pe. That's M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S. Uh, he does logos. He's an artist. He also has two podcasts: Nación Combi and Living in Peru. Nación Combi is in every podcatcher. Uh, it's about Peruvian current affairs. It's in Spanish. Uh, Living in Peru is in English. It's about immigrants to Peru. That's on iVox. Uh, he also is a writer. He uh, has uh, three zombie novels. The third one just came out. It's called Requiem por Lurin. I don't know if it's the big finale of his uh, zombies take over the Peruvian capital saga, but it's definitely uh, the latest one. It's uh, the best-selling series. So check it out if you can read in Spanish. And I really, all we're missing now is uh, Hans's hot take on Blue Velvet, which I'm sure will come at some point. I, I did have a De Palma heavy week. I watched The Black Dahlia and I watched Dress to Kill. Have you ever seen Dress to Kill? I, I haven't. I've seen The Black Dahlia. So Black Dahlia is, I, I, I texted you like my thoughts while it was going on. There's a lot of good to that movie, specifically Scarlett Johansson and Hilary Swank and the entire aesthetic of the movie. The insurmountable issue with it is Josh Hartnett and Aaron Eckhart. <laughs> they are just not equipped for that type of gimmick movie, that type of like 40s detective noir. Both of those guys are talented in their own right, but that was just asking way too much of them to do that, and the movie <laughs> suffers because of it. That being said, the aesthetic of it, again, Scarlett Johansson and Hilary Swank, it's worth visiting for that because the movie's, uh, you know, Mattis rule. I think it's 100 minutes, 90 minutes. It's fine. Dress to Kill is fucking awesome, though. It's De Palma at his most absolutely absurd, and that is the De Palma I love. Um, There's really not too much you can get into without spoiling the entire plot of the movie, but you do have Dennis Franz as the New York detective in it, and God, he is a fashion plate to behold in that movie. Um, And, you know, Michael Caine, I'm trying to think of where I'd rank it. It's somewhere in between Carrie and Snake Eyes in terms of its absurdity. But it's... uh, And watching all this, I realized that De Palma is one of my more uh, go-to directors in, in terms of, like, 
his good is great to me and his bad is absolutely terrible. He's he has such a fascinating filmography like in that he's made Blowout and then he's also made you know the Black Dahlia for people that really dislike that cuz that movie killed his uh, his entire career domestically. That was the last time like American studios gave him money to make a movie. Really? I don't think it lost money, it just barely broke even. But reviewing like his movies since then it's all been things uh overseas that have had to been financed for him he's made some trash don't get me wrong but like his he's got such a fascinating filmography and he's made so many movies and a lot of his his uh you know his home runs are movies that i absolutely adore so i mean i i've i'm familiar with a filmography i like probably half of what I've seen and I still have a lot that I haven't seen. <laughs> I kind of get the feeling that there's nothing that he's done recently worth watching but there's so many movies that if they're not I guess indispensable watching they're at least worth watching just for, for the experience at least once. Anyway, Julio, what do you got to plug for us? I'm going to fall on the on the tried and true plug of uh, just plugging another podcast which we've talked about before. Uh, the Our friends from Four Year Reference, we mentioned them on our fifth anniversary episode, I think. Uh, but we never played their promo. So uh, we're going to play their promo here. Hey, friends and potential lovers. Have you ever felt so passionately after watching a TV show or a movie but not have a pal to share it with? Allow us the honor of keeping you company with our weekly podcast for your reference with your hosts, KT and OT. Each episode, we break down our hot takes that you'll either ardently agree or vehemently disagree with, like subs versus dubs. How important is a cohesive narrative? What's with the popularity of the relatable villain? Is it possible to be truly objective in spite of your own experiences? And most importantly, are you getting a clue and which direction is it pointing? Come on now, it's pointing towards for your reference. That's a great reference. If you've got a little room in your rotation for some salacious frivolity, check out For Your Reference wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, so that was uh, For Your Reference. Check them out. Uh, also check out Film Busters with Ben. And if uh, if Jordan ever gets a, a podcast, we'll play his promo and we'll plug him in this, uh, in this section oh, too. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> All right, so next on the horizon for the Contrarians is Boyhood. Uh, we'll need to set aside a Saturday for that one. It's a three-hour epic. Uh, yeah, I've only seen it once, so uh, I look forward to watching it again. It's I, I remember having a good time, but that's that could have been very gimmick-driven, so I'm curious to how, how I would react now. <laughs> good time, all right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it tackles some pretty heavy shit. Yeah, but I mean, I remember the the criticisms at the time. I was like, "Well, was it necessary to shoot it this way?" And uh, obviously, how I feel about it. No, but that's the point of the movie. Well, I, I at the time I thought it was. So I'm curious to see if I, w- I would still appreciate the same things I appreciated back then, or if I'm kind of over it by now. We'll see. We will see indeed, as that'll be our next episode of the Contreras before we get to the summer of Winota. That'll all unfold as we. Uh, lay out the future episodes but for now that was the hangover three that was episode 105 Uh, we appreciate y'all listening that's going to do it for us on the contrarians where we're right and you're wrong and we will catch you next time
I hope you